0: The Gist is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com gist and using the promo code gist.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: Mm-hmm. Friday, May 6, 2016, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Paul Ryan is not ready. To endorse Donald Trump. I am not ready to run the New York City Marathon. Paul Ryan has already won the New York City Marathon, apparently, we're checking this out, but he is not ready. Now, is his not readiness, the not readiness of a mouse being not ready to eat the elephant? Is it of the Dixie Chicks not ready to make nice ilk? Or the, I'm not ready to settle down, baby, just give me one more trip to Lake Havasu with Boomer and the Vark. The old line is, that when it comes to presidential nominees, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Well, this year, Republicans are falling apart. Total eclipse of the heart. And while the bright eyes that belong to Paul Ryan might turn around, these GOP stalwarts won't. Here is Mitt Romney's former campaign manager, Stuart Stevens, on Panoply's own Trump cast. And someone should have looked him in the eye in the very first debate and said, Donald, you're a ridiculous candidate. And here's Mark Salter, a McCain speechwriter, but actually as much more as David Axelrod put it to Mike Murphy on the Axelrod Files podcast. Mark Salter is McCain's alter ego. Here's Salter on NPR yesterday. I, I guess it comes down to I think he's unfit for the office, that he's psychologically, temperamentally unfit for the office and that he would be a danger to the country. So McCain's alter ego blasts Trump but McCain himself grudgingly supports him or doesn't not support him. Why? Here is a field guide to defecting Republicans. Republican elected officials are a lot different from Republican consultants and Republican pundits. You may have seen this writer or that blogger announcing he's with her or burning some Republican registration card, but it all comes down to who's your constituency. A politician's constituency is his or her actual constituents. And here you have a very popular politician. Donald Trump is popular among Republicans, at least. And it is hard for an actual politician who needs votes to explicitly run away from the man atop the ticket. But if you are a writer in the conservative blogosphere, your constituency is conservatism. You're fine. If you're a consultant, your constituency is Republican candidates who might one day hire you in the future. You're doubly fine. It hurts not at all to take an anti-Trump stance. In fact, it burnishes your bona fides. Weirdly, an anti-Trump stance can be used to show you're a true conservative, because he's not, or that you're a real moderate, because he's so immoderate. So when you hear about GOP defections, ask yourself, what is the defector's long-term motivations and individual instances of bravery? or apostasy, should be evaluated through that lens. On the show today, it is an Antan Twig, but first, he is the son of comedy royalty, the director of some of the most memorable, quotable, wonderful movies in the last 40 years. He's Rob Reiner, and his new film is an interesting and personal departure. The governor of California has an 18-year-old son. His name is Charlie. He's just gotten out of rehab. Intriguing. The story can go in a lot of directions, but know this. Being Charlie is directed by Rob Reiner, and it was written by his son, Nick Reiner, along with co-writer Matt Ellis-Soffin, and those two guys met in rehab. Rob Reiner's here. Hello. How are you? Hey, how are you? So in this, I'm good. In this movie, or I'm well, I think grammatically I'm well. You are well. Yeah, thank you. I'm well, you don't, let me finish. I'm well, not so good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so in this movie, the stakes father-son rehab, obviously more than the echoes of real life, mapping your experience to some extent in the movie, but then you have the element of the governor. So there are stakes for him, which must have been different from the stakes that you actually had in real life with your son. It wasn't the case that no matter what happened with Nick, your son, that it would really make you lose a job, hurt your career.
1: No, no. And and it's not something I even thought about. I mean, it wasn't like crossed my mind that, you know, what he was going through was going to have any effect on my career or anything like that. I was concerned about him as my son. We made this... To raise the stakes a little bit in the fiction of the story. And
0: also because you're very interested in politics. You made the American president. It's also a good chance to comment on politics and what you know of politicians in right, general. Right, right. Yeah.
1: I, I, I do have one foot in that world as well as another in the, in the show
0: business. Carrie Ewell's? Carrie Elwes, Elwes, I always get that wrong. Yeah, who of English. course was the Dread Pirate Roberts in the Great, yes. Great Princess Bride? Yes, he was. Have you worked with him in the no, interim? no?
1: We've kept a, a relationship. We've stayed in touch and been yeah. friends. And I was always looking for something I could do with him.
0: So he plays, he's running for governor of California. He's got a catchphrase. He's got an action movie yeah. background. But his catchphrase is pirate-esque. And I was wondering if that was a coincidence since he played the pirate in the eh, movie. Well,
1: we put that in there because of, <laughs> you know, he did play the Dread Pirate Roberts. We figured he could have been a very successful actor who, you know, had a series of pirate movies. <laughs> yeah.
0: I know some of you see me as a washed-up swashbuckler who got bored marauding the high seas, but I've lived all of my adult life in California. And as I stand here at the start of my campaign, I want to let my opponent know that yo-ho-ho, and the battle's begun! He's governor, and a lot of his motivation is, you know, not exactly with his son's best interests at heart. So that's not like what was going on with you and your son, I presume. However there was like a shame element to it. And I wonder if you as a dad, I'm a father of kids and I did a lot of projection. My kids are young. But How I old want, are your kids? Nine and Seven. You know, you don't have to deal with those kind of issues yet. But and you may you, have to. But there were scenes in the movie, like there was that one scene that was shot for comedy where it was a group session and two women named Kathy were crying, right? Yes. And I, you could tell when it's shot for comedy. Well, if you're not a student of film like I am, if you're not, you, you, it just seems funny. But the framing of it, the kid in the middle, the parallelism of two mothers crying a little bit over the top. But there was something about that scene with all these like broken down, slack jawed, just dull-eyed kids, so disaffected, and just the pain of the mothers. It's comedy, but it's pathos also. Yeah, it
1: is. And and when that scene came from real experiences that we had, and when Nick was in various rehabs over the years, there was always these family sessions where the parents would come together with the children and they'd have these therapy sessions. And we were struck, always struck by the fact that the parents were always talking about themselves and their shattered dreams. Yeah. Here you are your child is struggling really going through a tough tough time and yet your concern is that how it reflects on you and that that this child has somehow shattered my dreams for what I expected of him and I always thought that that was kind of funny and selfish and and kind of interesting
0: (laughs) I don't know what I did wrong I tried to be a good mom
1: When he was young, his teachers loved him, said he lit up the classroom, and then all my hopes, my dreams, shattered. I did see a lot of people in those meetings who did think of it that way, that, you know, this the kid is doing something to me. I didn't view it that way. I just viewed my child in pain, and I didn't know what to do to help him. And so, you know, this process of making the movie uh, was a big eye-opener for me. I mean, I didn't go into it thinking, all right, this is going to be cathartic, you know, or... Or, you know, it'll be like a therapeutic Mm -hmm. uh, experience. But it turned out to be that because it forced me to look at what Nick was going through. And it forced him, I think, to look at what I was experiencing.
0: We could be so disappointed and we are with people in life and there are ways to deal with that. But then when you're disappointed or you feel for whatever, you have these emotions towards your sons. It's you have them towards yourself, too. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because you raised them. Yes. Not only did you raise them,
1: but you see a lot of your traits in them and you see them struggling to try to find their own identities. And when you're a teenager, whether you take drugs or not, you're going through a very rough time and, and struggling with all kinds of confusion and your brain is, is, is reordering itself. And you see as a parent that they are struggling to free themselves of certain influences that you might've had on them to find their own core When you see them struggling and you see your impurities and your, uh, you know, foibles and things, it comes right back in your face and you see how your issues have been placed onto them. Yeah. And then that's doubly,
0: then that makes you look inward too. Yeah. Uh, So it's a process. Yeah. It's a thing. At least it's a good movie in the end. Um, now there's another element, which is Okay, so a kid who's raised in Hollywood, a kid who's raised in the movie, he was raised the governor's son. And of course, his dad is this famous Arnold Schwarzenegger-esque actor. I said the name, you didn't. (laughs) Um, But you were raised in Hollywood, too. Um, You know, your father, everyone I hope knows, is Carl Reiner, greatest comic mind. Well, one of the two. My father's Carl Reiner? Yes, yes. Jesus no, I, don't, I, I guess not everybody did. That know means that. like Mel Brooks is your uncle. That's or something. right. Yeah. By the way, that guy still got it.
1: I know they, they, both they do. do. I know crazy. they they spend every
0: night together. They watch a movie. They have dinner, and uh, they 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 have each other. It's great. Oh, amazing! But my question is: so the, it must be very hard to navigate being raised as a child of a famous person in Hollywood, and yet you were. Did your experience help you with your son, or is it still hard? Well, to I I, I think it's difficult. I mean, I certainly. Understand
1: the pressures that he is experiencing. I mean, I went through a lot of that myself. I think it's even more difficult for him because he's got not only his father, but his grandfather to come up against. So I know what those yeah. pressures are if you're going to go into the same line of work and it's a public, visible line of work i know how difficult that
0: can be so in the movie charlie's a huge fan of uh mom's mabley and uh some old uh he likes richard pryor and george carlin and lenny bruce and uh uh,
1: somebody that a lot of people don't know lord buckley who was a very hip comedian back in the 40s and 50s yeah
0: he was he kind of spanned the vaudeville era Yeah, yeah yeah so was that reflective of uh your real son nick Well, not so much my son, Nick,
1: but he's a big fan of, you know, he loves Louis C.K. I mean, he's a huge fan of Louis C.K. And he likes Chris Rock and certain comedians. I grew up liking certain comedians, and these are the comedians that I liked. And I think that anybody who gets into stand-up, you start looking back and seeing you know, who's done it great.
0: So did you listen to what they called the race records? Did you listen yeah, to Yeah, I the, to all of it. Did your dad give them to you? And?
1: No, I don't know if he gave them to I, I mean, I, I came upon them. You know, I started by listening to Nichols and May and Shelly Berman and Bob Newhart and those kind of records and Woody Allen. But then I started diving into Moms Mabley and Red Fox and, and Lord Buckley and all these great, great hip comedians.
0: Now I did notice okay, so the actor who plays Charlie, his name is Nick Robinson. Nick Robinson, he's excellent. Your he's son a, is yeah. Nick Reiner. Nick Reiner. Now yeah. remember that part in a Short thing where John Cusack yes. says, You're gonna name your kid Elliot? You name your kid Nick. Like Nick? Nick? Yeah, Nick. Nick's a real name. Nick's your buddy. Yeah. Nick's a guy you have a beer with. Nick's a guy you puke in the car yeah, with. And doesn't sorry, mind it. Sorry, yeah. not puke vomit. The kind of guy who doesn't mind if you puke in his car. Nick. Oh, vomit! I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. I mean, is yeah. that why? Is that why? Is Nick? You know, a- <laughs> it definitely
1: went through our heads. Michelle, who's sitting here with me, his mother, and I. We did definitely when we came on the name Nick. We definitely did go through that that rap that Nick's,
0: Nick's your buddy. Nick's a guy you can have beer with. All right, I can't go through the entire oeuvre, but your first four. It? Yeah, right. Your first five, your first six. We could, I don't know where to stop. Here's where your movie's in order without skipping one. Spinal Tap, Sure Thing, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men. Gee, my God. I stopped at North. Not a terrible movie. Why? You don't
1: have to stop at North.
0: <laughs> then American President Goes to the Mississippi. Amazing movies. I, I, I can't ask you about all of them, but I want to ask you a question, maybe about one or two. Here's my question about Spinal Tap. Have we reached comedically peak mockumentary? You know, I don't know. I mean, we started this thing
1: there was no such thing as mockumentary. I mean, we just... If were you gonna, will. If yes, you will. If we, we just basically said, this is the best way to tell this story. We wanted to do a satire of a rock and roll tour and so we figured this was the best way to do it. So, but
0: now it seems like even sitcoms default to mockumentary, yeah. if you will. Yeah. The Office, which is a good show. But they don't even explain why the documentary crew is there. It's almost as if we've been taught a grammar that yes. started with Spinal Tap. And we
1: can accept it. Yeah. We just can Accept it, but and I, mean, I guess
0: in that movie you're there to, as as the framing technique to even explain what this thing a mockumentary yeah, is, and, yeah. and
1: basically we took that off of uh, Martin Scorsese in The Last Walls. yeah, because Martin Scorsese. Who did, it's a great, great documentary, "The Last Waltz," about the band that played behind Dylan. And uh, but Marty was in the movie, yeah. And so I figure, okay, he insinuates himself in and the you're movie. You're Marty DeBerg, and, and I'm Marty Bergie. Right. There you go. Okay, so a few. Good- and Marty Scorsese used to used to really be upset that we had done that. Now he loves it; <laughs> yeah, He thinks it's good. Hello, my name is Marty DeBergi. I'm a filmmaker. I make a lot of commercials. That little dog that chases the covered wagon underneath the sink.
0: That was mine. A Few Good Men object to this question, if you will. Does the extreme success of A Few Good Men, I love this movie, does it show that to some degree Aaron Sorkin is helped by boundaries? Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. Uh, and what what do you mean because of, of, of no, he's a brilliant
0: writer. No, know, but when left to his own device, like, Aaron, you're a genius, go for it. Sometimes it doesn't work out. But when he has a collabor, I find this with Spike Lee, too. The man's a genius, and yet when he collaborates, when he's got someone saying it can't go two hours, 20 minutes, it gets better. So there you are directing the movie, taking his words. Right. Uh, you know, I think as a movie, that's the best. I, I mean, I loved The Social Network, yeah, which yeah. he wrote but didn't direct. Right, right, So. Right. You know, not to – putting West Wing aside, I think that – I don't know. My theory is that you get a brilliant mind, but sometimes you get two brilliant minds or you get someone kind of putting a limitation on the brilliant mind, the mind gets more brilliant.
1: Uh, I I think if you – when you have the right collaboration and there are people who can – Bump up against each other and get the best out of each other. I agree that you can find the the alloy that will be better than the sum of the than the you know than the sum of the parts. Yeah. I mean, it becomes a bigger thing. Yeah, that can happen. But Aaron, listen, he's a brilliant writer. He don't need me.
0: Does Harry Met Sally? Is that the pinnacle of the genre romantic comedy, or is it the exception to the genre? I don't know. I think the uh, genre is uh, it's moribund, or is it? More abundant because or is it maybe? less? Or is
1: it less abundant?
0: Yes, it's more, or more abundant, abundant or is it less abundant? But it's so good. I wonder if this shows that the genre called romantic comedies are on a continuum, and this is on the extreme end of a continuum. Or maybe there's no continuum. Maybe you nailed it with uh, when Harry met Sally, and it's just so hard to do that sort of thing. We shouldn't keep. Trying.
1: Well, I think no. <laughs> I think it, you know, uh, men and women and the dance that men and women do have been going on forever, and there's always a way of taking a look at it and seeing uh, how how it's done and a different way of doing it. And if you think of it as there are certain grammatical rules to the cute meat and they get driven apart and then how they get back to then I think you're in trouble. But if you approach it from a real place, which is kind of how we did, I mean, it was basically about my having been single for 10 years and trying to figure out how you get with a woman, that became the basis for it. It wasn't like, oh, let's make a romantic comedy. I mean, initially we called it Scenes from a Friendship and it was about these Ooh, that men- seems
0: like Renoir. Well, it was like it. a yeah.
1: Bergman. I mean, yeah. you remember Scenes from a Marriage, yeah. Bergman. Yeah. I mean, it was just about these two people who came in and out of each other's lives and talked about relationships and could they ever get together. And that was the idea. And
0: that is timeless. And maybe it's just that when we call something a rom-com, when it's not so good, we label it a rom-com. When it is good, it's, it's a just baby. A, it's just or a it's, movie. Yeah, it's a great it's, movie. It's a movie
1: right, right. and there's a man and a woman and it's about what, you know, they're going through.
0: Do you have to pay for Dr. Brown's at Katz's to this day?
1: You know, it's so funny, but at Katz's, the, you can sit at the table yeah. where we did the famous scene, the orgasm scene, and it tells you <laughs> where to sit and you can sit there. And from what I understand, I mean, people come and sit down and they act the scene out. <laughs> And and, and and they're fi- everybody's fine with that. And I saw a video, it was a flash mob, where they all went to Katz and every table, what, there was a guy and a girl, and every woman in the restaurant was faking an orgasm. <laughs> and all the guys were, you know, yes! reacting. Yes! Yes!
0: And of course, Katz has said, no, our pastrami is just that good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, see? Being Charlie is the name of the new movie. It was written by Nick Reiner. It's directed by Carl Reiner. Thank see, sorry, I see? said Carl.
1: No, but see, wait a minute. No, no, no. You could keep that in. Yeah. You you know why you keep that in? Why? Because that makes the point of how difficult it is to make the break yeah. and how hard it is. And and that, by the way, you're not saying anything that hasn't been said to me. A million I'm times. So sorry. You know, no, don't be sorry. I mean, I'm just saying. That's the that's the thing. Well, our ge- you should keep that in. Don't I cut that out.
0: Our guest has been Estelle Reiner. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Thank you. I'm going to tell you about Casper. They make mattresses, and they have a square deal for you for their rectangular mattresses. So, an in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper mattress. Uh, towards the end of the development process, they really things really kicked into high gear, and my theory is because they were sleep getting really good night's sleeps. And as they were done with the development, the mattress was almost perfected. So they were coming in and just ideas were flying out of their heads like gangbusters. And what they've come up with is a mattress that combines springy latex and supportive memory foam that's got the right sink and the right bounce. Let's talk cost. Mattresses, they cost $1,500. For a King Casper mattress, it's $950. Queen is $850. Full $750. I won't read you every price point, but it's It's a lot cheaper than a regular mattress, than a mattress that you buy at a showroom. And here's the best part. It's risk-free. They offer free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. Now, when I say return your mattress, you're probably like, oh, I gotta drag it to the post office. I gotta get the right postage. How do you even weigh that thing? I look like an idiot online in the post office. No! They come up. They pick it up. They're like, hey, we know you slept on it for three months. I didn't hear you saying anything then, but that's fine. We'll take it back for hundred dollars you can sleep on this mattress. That's the way to buy a mattress. And here's the code we're going to give out for $50 off your mattress, casper.com slash gist. That is the code to use to get $50 off your mattress. So try it, casper.com slash gist, $50 off. And now the spiel, it's an antan twig. Yes, it is an antan twig, which is our word for a three-week period, not due to illness. Well, it wasn't really a three-week period. It was more a month. So Andrea and I were brainstorming about what to call a month-long period. We came up with month. There's an old English version. So we're going to stick with antan twig. We're just going to play it fast and loose about how three-weekedness such a period is. So this is where we issue corrections. We apologize. We grovel. We ask for uh, your donations and upcoming pledge drives. No, that won't happen. That is our solemn vow. Doug Holstein writes in to say, hey, that judge you were talking about who went out to try to protect the Wolverines, she's Dana Christensen- But the thing is, Dana Christensen's a guy. So thank you, Ms. Doug Holstein. And then I was saying Bear County. So there's a county, it's it's a big county. San Antonio's there. It's a big county down there in Texas. B E X A R. How would you say it? I remember I once did a report and I got corrected. So I knew that it wasn't Bexar or Bexar, but it was Bear. The thing is, they just say Bear, like Ursine, Bear. I tried to give it an extra syllable. It seems that B-E-X-A-R demands an extra syllable. They're having none of it. So I don't know if this is me mispronouncing a county or simply not lining up with the way locals pronounce it, but really, should locals be pronouncing it that way, then you get it into the whole Pierre versus Pierre situation. Capital South Dakota, spelled like the man's name, Pierre, but everyone there says Pierre, so to show you're in the know, you say Pierre. But really, is saying Pierre like saying Boston, Boston? Is it just saying Pierre with a pure accent, I go back to Behar County, or, as the locals say, Bear. Now, pronunciations are my bet-noir, or as some say, bear-noir. We've been doing this show with a skeleton staff. Her name's Andrea. She's a lovely person, but she's one person, and when I worked at NPR, I think the number one thing that the lowest producer on the totem pole would do is just make sure things were correctly pronounced, and there are Pronunciation guides and certain syllables would be in caps and accent marks would be given. But now it's just up to me to pronounce things correctly. I'm not a good pronunciator in general, but I know this about myself. So then when I see, say, a proper word, I try to get it right. This brings me to the op-ed piece in the New York Times by Jill Filipovich. Filipovich. Filipovic? Okay, so what do I do when I'm faced with F-I-L-I-P-O-V-I-C? The answer is, I go to YouTube. And there, pretty prominently, a TV network interviewing Jill. Let's hear how they bring her on. Well, joining me from our studio in New York to discuss it is Jill Filipovic, editor of Feminist. But I wasn't so sure, because that TV network was RT, the Vladimir Putin-owned propaganda network. And they had her on again, and here's how they brought her on that time. Well, joining me from our studio in New York to discuss this is Jill Filipovic. Filipovic, editor of Feminist. Oh, so that was a hash. Can't go by that. I found another Jill Filipovic Filipovic interview. This is something called OLM News. Davy D. Speaks. All right, Davy D., you take it.
1: Her name is Jill Filipovic. I've got it right, did I not?
0: Very close, very close. Very close! Very close. There are no D's in that name. That is A not very close. Very gracious of Jill to tell him it was very close, but that was not close at all. So finally I tracked down a video where an expert on how to pronounce Filipovich is there. It's Jill Filipovich, And here she tells us that her name is actually pronounced Jill Filipovich. This is Jill Filipovich for Grit TV. All right, Jill Filipovich, I got that in my head. I did all this research. I'm going to say Jill Filipovich on the show, and then I say Filipovich. I knew it was an itch. I guess I flopped on the falapo part. Sorry. What I pulled out of that column by Jill Filipovich was her reference to Mike Tyson as a convicted rapist. Would a woman be so sure to take a endorsement from a convicted rapist? My points were... Almost no man besides Donald Trump would happily take that endorsement, but how could we on the one hand say, you know, Mike Tyson's a convicted rapist, on the other hand, give convicted felons the vote, but celebrate one and decry the other? There are ways to do this. I was just puzzling it out. Ariel Dundas on Twitter. She disagreed with my line of reasoning, sent me a few tweets focused on the fact that, yes, I was right that Mike Tyson is not only a rapist, just like all these felons aren't only ex-cons. And she wrote, David Duke is not only a white supremacist, but the fact that he is makes his public endorsement less valuable or harmful. That's a good point rhetorically to which I would say, and I did on Twitter, but I want to do it here also, that David Duke as an unrepentant white supremacist, has not paid his debt to society. Now, it's not illegal to hold loathsome opinions. So what would his debt to society be? Totally renouncing that belief system, not just an affiliation with the ku klux klan as an entity but doing works to renounce that belief system whereas with mike tyson with ex-convicts paying your debt to society is serving your time in jail so i do think it is inconsistent to say that felons should be given the right to vote even rapists even murderers but then when they do vote or they do tell you who you're going to vote for to say i don't want his vote The Tyson thing is all the more complicated because Mike Tyson is unrepentant, just like David Duke is unrepentant. But I think in David Duke's case, repentance is the very definition of paying your debt to society. In an ex cons case, who in some ways claims he was innocent, that is not a prerequisite to be able to vote. And I do think if you think felons should have the vote, you should not run away from their vote. Now we come to Lopstars, and that is where I award the greatest listener, the greatest tweeter, the greatest Facebook follower— is Michael Nicholson, who said, I might not be the biggest gist listener, but I'm willing to bet that I have listened to the gist on more countries and more continents than anyone else. I'm an economist with the U.S. Foreign Service. During the time, the two years our podcast has been on, I've lived in Liberia, Pakistan, and now Kenya. And he even says, since his wife couldn't join him in Pakistan due to security, and his Kentucky Wildcats shuffle their best players in and out, that I, Mike Pesca, have been the biggest constant in his life. That does my heart well. Thank you, Michael Nicholson. You are the lop star of this Antan Twig. And it just goes to show, Netflix will give you good movies everywhere. There's all these services for shippable food. You get a great bottle of wine anywhere. And the gist flattens all media. I mean, this is what podcasts do. I remember I used to live in the South and I would say, my God, the AM radio is terrible here and the local newspaper isn't that much better. But in 2016, it's all there at your fingertips. And if your name is Michael Nicholson, you also have the lobster of the ant antwig to haul around from country to country and rest on your peripatetic mantelpiece. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is not ready to give up the hashtag squad goals. Mary Wilson is not ready to give up the subtweet. Yes, all squad goals. Executive producer of Slate Podcast Steve Lichtai is not ready to commit to Almaty as certainly and definitely the capital of Kazakhstan. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is not ready to commit one way or the other on the question of being good enough for grape nuts. The gist, we're not ready to listen to any song off of Boston's album Third Stage, except we're ready. Umperu peru de peru do peru and thanks for listening.